Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You know, it's unfortunate that I got a guy like Mike Conley who in his whole career has got zero technical fouls and just cannot seem to get the proper respect from the officials um, that he deserves. Uh, It was a very poorly officiated basketball game. Um, Zach Randolph, the most rugged guy in the game, had zero free throws, but somehow Kawhi Leonard had 19 free throws. First half, we shot 19 points, shot 19 shots in the paint, and we had six free throws. They shot 11 times in the paint, and they had 23 free throws. I'm not a numbers guy, but that doesn't seem to add up. Overall, 35 times we shot the ball in the paint. We had 15 free throws for the game. They shot 18 times in a paint and had 32 free throws. Kawhi shot more free throws than our whole team. Explain it to me. We don't get the respect that these guys deserve because Mike Conley doesn't go crazy. He has class, and he just plays the game. But I'm not going to let them treat us that way. You know, I know Pop's got pedigree, and I'm a young rookie, but they're not going to rook us. That's unacceptable. That was unprofessional. My guys dug in that game and earned the right to be in that game, and they did not even give us a chance. Take that for data. Well, that was David Fisdale after the Grizz suffered a 96-82 loss to the Spurs. We'll get to that game in a little bit, but thought we would start you with the, the quote of the day. Also got to do Cavs Pacers. That's where we'll begin with. And then lots of news that's uh, piled up as well. We'll close the show with that. We are brought to you today by our friends at SeatGeek. Use that cap space code to get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase and blinds.com for limited time you'll get 20 percent off everything at blinds.com when you use that familiar promo code cap space all right Danny. so let's get started with the, this Cavs pacers game it was really a very similar game to the previous one except that indiana wasn't quite able to get close enough down the end uh, cleveland continued to score really well indiana scored really well as also but just not quite as well as cleveland did and uh, it ended up with another somewhat frustrating loss for indiana but you know it's clear to me that despite everything that paul george is doing and, and jeff teague as well uh had a really nice game tonight that you know their defense just can't be good enough against this Cavs team to really threaten them i don't think i thought it was interesting that in the last six minutes about that was about the the line where i drew it i thought that cleveland was taking harder shots than indiana and it was striking because that was just not true for most of the game you know the cleveland was getting was getting easier shots and a, a moment 
moment that really stuck with me was in this, I think it was in the early second quarter. Indiana scored on five consecutive trips down the floor. I think one of those was off an offensive rebound. And they only made up one point because Cleveland got a series of threes and and also got to the free throw line, I think, at least twice. And so that kind of put the series in stark relief for me that while the Pacers are incredibly talented, while they can do things, while they can do a lot right, it's going to be hard for them to put it all together. Yeah, I, I think your comment before the series that this might be a series that takes a lot out, out of Cleveland, or uh, I don't know if you quite said this, but to me just continues to expose what some of their weaknesses are as a team, uh, especially defensively. And, and also you could even look at late game offense a little bit. They've been fantastic in the clutch. Obviously, they're a good clutch team last year as well. They're pretty clutch when they came back from down 3-1 in game seven against the Warriors and all that. But Cleveland does run some pretty simple stuff down the stretch and they have actually struggled to score in the last six minutes of both of these games uh, because it's just pretty much 3-1 pick and roll or 1-3 pick and roll every time and especially if they have Thompson on the floor that's something where you can bring if you have a good rim protecting center you can bring him over and kind of muck those actions up a little bit. Uh, Paul George was fantastic in this one again 32 points 10 of 20 from the field hit four of his 10 three-point attempts as well seven assists eight rebounds leading the team in all three of those categories but he did get some good support in this one Thaddeus Young 16 points 7 11 six steals he had some great help defense at times Turner did have three blocks uh, although he was three out of ten for six points which is pretty ugly and then Teague who we had talked about looked a little bit slow in the first game broke out 23 points on only 12 shot attempts two of three on threes a uh, very impressive game for him although he only he only had four assists uh did Teague look faster to you in this one a little bit but it's also not a surprise that Jeff Teague and Kyrie Irving can produce offensively against each other no that's true although Teague is not the greatest defender but Irving is on a whole other level where he his demerits defensively I mean Teague at least he can switch on to LeBron and he'll at least try you know he has some limitations to be sure but uh, Kyrie other than maybe like one steal that he had in an isolation uh, just does not try at all I mean that was the other takeaway that I had I mean just in the first quarter alone doing the Twitter NBA show you know as I'm watching the game I'll call out whenever I see some bad defense and yeah I'm probably predisposed to see it more from Kyrie just because I already believe that he's a poor defender but there were probably like six seven or eight just miserable efforts by him in the first quarter alone and every pick and roll that he's in results in a switch whether it's intentional or not because he just doesn't get over the screen and the big just has to step up on his guy uh and whether that's part of the scheme now if it is part of the scheme it's part of the scheme because they just know he's not going to get over the screen so you know you better just switch it anyway um but you know what Kyrie Irving had 37 points on 24 shooting possessions uh, or I'm sorry uh, 27 shooting possessions in this one so uh you know he's still pretty good yeah you don't want to have to throw the baby out with the bathwater you think that he can improve and he has had some better defensive performance performances than he did today but if that's the trade-off you live with it every every single time because even though the Cavs don't need Kyrie in the way that some other teams would just because of LeBron James having him is such a luxury for this team and helps make their offense really sing yeah and really it was just a monster effort overall from the big three not one of James's better games actually uh at least on offense due to his eight turnovers he was still 25 points 11 to 20 from the field uh missing his free throws still missed a half of his free throws in this one but uh four 
four steals, four blocks for James. He was really the only one playing any defense for Cleveland other than Amon Shumpert, who we'll get to a little bit. Uh, he came in for J.R. Smith, who went down shortly before halftime with a hamstring. And then Kevin Love, seven shot attempts. 27 points three of four on three pointers 12 of 12 from the foul line and you know i'd love to say how kevin love is just this unbelievable player and what a performance and there were some aspects of it that were great the three-point shooting for sure uh his quick release is a huge problem for traditional bigs to match up with and then you know he went into the post on lance stevenson and you know he had a stevenson had a couple legitimate fouls Love also did a great job posting and LeBron James threw two just unbelievable passes just over the top to a fronted Love for fouls or buckets. All that was great. But Love, again, just getting with complete murder with that off arm. He's allowed to just like slam into guys with it and knock them backwards. He also did the play where he used his off arm, you know, I mean, a chicken wing away from his body and then just took the off arm without it even touching the ball up through uh, Lance Stevenson's arm and got a foul call on that one. I mean, they're just i'll say that in that those particular instances and, and overall here i think the pacers got a pretty rough whistle in this one yeah i have no opposition to that statement at all i thought that there were there were some times where they, the refs just i think they just need to be more aware of it and maybe that's the type of thing that's worth a coach getting a fine early in a series just so the refs start looking at it a little bit more because it is easier sometimes to see on television especially with the way that we're looking for it but it's not it's not that crafty that it's hard to see well david fisdale would certainly agree with you danny uh i I will say that although i don't think that uh, mcmillan has done that great of a coaching job that uh, he overall that their connectivity and uh and their communication on defense has left a lot to be desired they blew a lot of switches in this game blew a lot of pick and roll coverages uh the most salient one was cj miles and lance stevenson anytime they came together on any sort of screening action they blew it uh most memorably when lebron came off a screen miles picked him up and then with stevenson not even close to in front of him miles just started running towards kyle corver and lebron just took one step to the basket and dunked it i mean i don't care if kyle corver is wide open for a three if lebron is 10 feet from the basket and you're the only thing between him and the basket like you damn well better stay there and he just ran to corver the three-point line and gave up a dunk i don't know who he th- monte ellis was on the backside like he wasn't gonna help out so uh despite some of those really ugly plays i thought mcmillan did well I, I thought he was smart to give uh, Glenn, Glenn Robinson the third a look who's coming off that calf injury I thought that not playing Aaron Brooks at all was a smart move he used Ellis more as a backup point guard uh, I thought that was pretty good he used Thaddeus Young to guard LeBron James more it wasn't Paul George guarding James all the time he tried to put George even on Irving and that's what led to uh, Love posting up on Stevenson as much as he did um, some were critical that he should have gotten Stevenson off of Love because there were basically like four possessions in a row where Love uh, either got fouled or scored on Stevenson. But, you know, that was the strategy. And I think they, you know, probably could have executed that a little bit better. I didn't mind that strategy. It was just, you know, Stevenson had to defend a little bit better without fouling. And the refs had to not make bad calls. Um, so I, I thought he did reasonably well there. Uh, didn't really have many answers to get Miles Turner open, which is something we should talk about. Um, yeah, I mean, that's maybe something to hit on now is like why Miles Turner was criticized by Paul George after the game. You know, why wasn't he able to be effective with shooting only three? out of 10. 
I think that given how many ball dominant guys they have, and I'm not saying Turner needs the ball in his hands more. We talked about that a little bit after game one. I think that it's hard for him to find an equilibrium in this series. And something they should consider trying just to maybe to activate him is to see if it works against Channing Fry. Just to give him some post touches and just see if it can get get him more involved. I, I don't think it's the answer. I don't think it's the solution to some of their problems. And Lance Stevens has actually done did a nice job scoring on that second unit in some of the second quarter stretch, but he's just had trouble finding his footing and he was better in game one than game two, which is concerning. Not, not this massive like freak out moment or anything like that, but I just see him just a little bit out of sorts. LeBron had that great help block on him late, but that wasn't, that wasn't representative to me, but it was notable. Uh, it was a little representative to me because he shot one out of five in the restricted area. And that's a good point. Uh, all of those plays and that one, obviously, you know, that's a tough finish, but uh, Turner is a little bit soft actually to be if we're being honest and uh, you know he, he's not gonna go through contact he's it's a very low free throw rate for a center uh, you know, he, he can get up and, and finish some dunks when he's got some space. But when he gets the ball and he's really challenged on the pick and roll, uh, contested finishes are not really his forte. He doesn't really have a ton of touch if it's not a dunk or around the rim. You know, not really a great guy to go and finish off of one foot uh, on the pick and roll. And with the Cavs bringing help over with the way they defended the pick and roll in this one, which they got to more down the end of game one as well, but uh, did it pretty much exclusively here was on those side pick and rolls rather than trying to force him to the baseline like a lot of teams do or switch it they would even just defend it with the big man coming way up even though they let the guy get middle and then if they threw it to the roll man they would bring a help guy over usually lebron james and that's not something that's usually going to work when you have a team with a lot of spacing um but that uh does not describe the indiana pacers and uh, the help defense was effective on turner and then when they would switch on turner uh if he tried to get into the post he's not really that physical down low and when they're fronting him again no spacing uh to prevent uh, the backside from coming over and preventing the pass into the post i do think they could get uh, try to get some looks for turner when he's in the game and when tristan thompson isn't uh turner likes to just go for more of his turnaround jumper he's not strong enough to back down in a position but you know it could be something to get him a little bit more engaged uh, as you mentioned but i you know i don't think that this is a series where he's necessarily going to dominate offensively uh you know and they're taking away his pick and pop game uh, by switching a lot of stuff on the high pick and roll and then the side pick and roll as we mentioned they're bringing another guy over to help are you concerned at all about cleveland having 19 assists on 42 made baskets well 42 made baskets is pretty good and and yeah. when you look and, at- and kyrie irving dominating in iso circumstances for stretches of this game certainly makes you feel better about it yeah i mean it, when kyrie really goes off not many of his buckets are going to be assisted same thing with james love more so will be assisted but uh another thing too is on a lot of those love free throws uh that would have been assists except he got fouled so it wasn't scored that way so i think their passing was a little bit better than it looked but i do think it's always an issue a little bit with cleveland that you know they're not moving the ball side to side unless it's a set out of bounds play and especially late in games and so they are relying on their guys to kick ass one-on-one but that's going to work against all but the absolute best defenses especially with the shooting they have around them now down the end when they're playing both shumpert and thompson uh because smith was out with that hamstring it, it maybe gets a little bit easier to stop them um smith was tried to move around before the second half uh you know and, and it looked like he was the one who's like 
hey i can't go which is a little bit different than the trainer saying that uh so he clearly was in some discomfort uh i think he's day-to-day as of now i would expect him to miss a couple of games if he was bothered that much uh and they should be very conservative because i they frankly don't need him in this series and shumpert i thought did do a really nice job on paul george in what was an awesome third quarter for the Cavs as they went up 18 after the third quarter and i I definitely felt that in both of these games especially this one the first three quarters was more indicative of where these teams are than uh the fourth quarter where you know indiana was able to make a little bit of a run down the end i'm not trying deliberately to disappoint those who are have a rooting interest for the two teams that lost tonight but i think a lot at the at this point you know kind of the transition point in these two series about the idea that if you go down to nothing sure you haven't you lost a game on your home floor you have to win four of five including at least one game on the other team's home floor on the the higher seeds home floor and that's a big challenge and even if for those who think that the Pacers are a strong team maybe this is a closer matchup than some anticipated that is an extremely tall ask and one that I would say is exceedingly unlikely to happen yeah I mean I wouldn't put it past the Cavs to just kind of mess around in these next two games and lose them both and it'd kind of be like the Toronto series last year where then they come back and take care of business at home in game five you know this isn't a Cavs team where they're like oh yeah they just put the hammer down in game three uh unless they're playing the Hawks of course um so uh, I can see that aspect of it for sure and like you said you know there's that adage that oh the series doesn't start until you know the road team or or the home team loses a game well uh, in this case the series will have started when they're down 3-0 when they when they lose a game and I think that's just that's always just been a quote that's used to kind of gin up some enthusiasm for teams that that are down 2-0 and I mean you know there's a reason why it's a 95% win expectancy or whatever it is uh, when you're up 2-0 now of course there's some selection bias in that because number one uh, the team with home court is usually going to be way better you know if it's a 1-8 series or a 2-7 series like this it's not like you know the team that goes up to zero is a better already and b has already proven that it's better other or you wouldn't have won the first two games so it's not like you know if the teams are even there's less of a chance of coming back but you know the teams are not even in this series as they are in most series that go up to zero the point about it being a non-representative sample is ex- is extremely important here i mean you get a lot of those you know the teams that go up not only in terms of the better seed but think about just some of the best teams in the league and some of the the talent disparity. While I openly opine for a system that is a little bit more preferable for top seeds, whether that be choosing opponents or top 16, whatever, they still generally have a pretty significant talent advantage. And there's, I don't know exactly where you would draw those lines because it's hard to, you can't build even enough of a sample to make it, you know, of more even circumstances, but it's notable in that way too, because the teams that generally go up to to nothing are really good teams. A couple other notes uh, before we move on here. Uh, I do think that the Pacers when they're going with a traditional big with Love and Fry as the bigs for Cleveland might even be better putting their center on Love I think Fry is a more automatic wide open three-point shooter and so you're better off playing a wing on him there they'll use Fry and pick and pops more than they will Love as well so you can get a switch there and then Love also will try to post up against smaller guys. So if you put your center on him, maybe you're taking that away a, a little bit more. But of course, no easy answers when you have to deal with that. Uh, Monte Ellis 
we mentioned, you know, in the open on the Twitter NBA show, this idea that, hey, you know, you can only play so many creators, especially if they can't shoot. I mean, Monte Ellis's usage rate was what, like 16% or something this year? He went one of four in 24 minutes. Uh, O of one from three at two points. And it's just like, the whole point of Monte Ellis is that he can create some shots for you. And he's just like not even really getting any touches to create those shots. And of course, they're not guarding him when he doesn't have the ball. So they're just this another example of how the theory of this team doesn't work. I mean, even if you believe that Monte can be this great scorer efficiently, which he can't, but even if you did think that, there just aren't enough shots to go around to even have him function in that role anyway. Monte's usage rate this year was 16.7, almost identical to Anthony Mora, former teammate. <laughs> uh paul george his offensive game i mean it, it, we should probably talk about uh, the way he drove to the basket i was really impressed by what he was able to do in some isos up top i especially liked getting him the ball kind of in that dirk Nowitzki, kevin durant iso area 17 18 feet from the basket uh his dunk that he had was ridiculous of course he just blew past Kyrie, who uh you know didn't even bother to, co- to compete on that one either um you know he shouldn't it, it's fine if you're going to get overpowered and he shoots over you just giving up a straight line drive to paul george like Kyrie should be quicker than than him and then kevin love actually took two very dangerous charge attempts both of which were blocks he was outside the restricted area but he undercut george uh george was lucky that he was able to land uh with his feet on either side of love uh, on that dunk attempt and then jeff teague kind of messed up his wrist when uh, love undercut him as well going for a charge and just underscores again we i talked about this a lot in the twitter nba show just my proposed fix to this charge issue is just push the restricted area out far enough that you'll never have a situation where someone is taking off and can still be undercut legally uh you know if there is going to be a charge contact that's going to occur let it occur before the guy gets in the air once he's in the air you you should not be able to take a charge because you know guys are going to get hurt (laughs) it's just uh and teague was lucky to escape without a severe uh, wrist injury on that play because he went flying. I don't have much to add in that just because we're in firm agreement, but I have a, a stat that just, it's it bothered me forever, but considering its relevance in this game, the two most used lineups for the Indiana Pacers this year were their main four guys, Paul George, Jeff Teague, Miles Turner, Thaddeus Young, and either Monte Ellis or CJ Miles. Monte being the most used lineup and CJ's version being the second most used. The lineup with Monte, slight negative, negative 0.2 so basically even with cj plus 7.7 in 444 minutes yeah and recently they started bringing uh, ellis to start uh, again i mean it's another one of those things that just doesn't make sense miles uh, has never been quite the shooter you might hope for him to be except in, in a few seasons but certainly in, in these alignments and miles also has been really bad defensively in this series like his his isos sure. against lebron james he's just been getting completely destroyed and you know it doesn't make it easy when it's james playing in those shooting lines ups but uh especially with the second unit but still i mean he's putting up no resistance and his communication has been really bad in this series too but you know he's still not any worse than ellis is uh, and he at least can just stand in the corner and make a shot i mean that's what they need uh, someone to do and i don't know why it was that they went back to ellis i mean ellis had like a pretty good game in that double overtime game against cleveland and he played mostly in that that double overtime so maybe that was like all the excuse they needed to go back to him but uh yeah uh, i agree 
with you. It, it is pretty frustrating, even if Miles has not played extremely well. He did have, he was 4-7 in this one in, in 16 minutes. So he actually is, when you consider the fact that Ellis can't, he's going to record scratch on most what would be open three-pointers. I mean, Miles actually is probably going to be able to get more shots than Ellis as well, just because Ellis, they're not just letting him run a pick and roll. And if he's, you're not doing that with him, he has no way to generate shots. They just throw it to him on the perimeter and then he just record scratches. Anything else in this game? I feel like, I feel like we've, we kind of hit on all the big moments. Yeah, no, I think that that's all oh, we need. Oh, I have uh, one. Yes, yes, okay. So the game was, it was pretty well in hand with... Uh, like 40 seconds to go and the Cavs had the ball I think they were up five and the the Pacers had just had a nice defensive possession and then Cleveland ran a, a, a just a beautiful out of bounds play to get I believe it was Darren Williams a what or it was Darren or Kyrie a wide no, it was, open it was, it was Kyrie yeah, yeah and the reason it worked was because Paul George failed to help on the back screen it was a screen the screen right. action in which uh, Kyrie set a screen for Korver going to the corner they were all in a stack uh, with four guys and then LeBron hit a monster back screen on Teague and you know Paul George I know he's like really concerned about guarding LeBron uh but you know you got to help on a back screen or you're going to give up lift that's why back screens are uh you know pretty good plays to run and you know especially because LeBron is not you know a great shooter he, he did hit some pretty tough twos in the first half but overall uh just not leaving him at all I mean he saw that Teague got obliterated and uh but it was a great design by Lou again so that was a, a nice play by him as uh, you know, I think he has uh, been able to get the better of McMillan in the, these late game situations. Not that that was uh, that close to begin with. So if you want to make your home look better and you want to just make your life easier as well, blinds.com is a great way to do that. However, uh, while blinds are awesome, installing them yourself is harder than a lot of people want to admit. It's harder than my landlord wants to admit because he's got these ones, uh, these like slat Venetian style blinds that he didn't even install correctly he just put them in through some string and then like didn't even thread them through the holes that they're supposed to go through they're just kind of laying there and like if you tap the blind on the side it'll like pop halfway out the other side like that's uh, you know my landlord's kind of lazy but uh you know it shows that it's pretty difficult to install blinds so blinds.com makes it really easy they offer a free online design consultation if you need help getting started you send in pictures of your home and you can get custom professional recommendations in return. They even will send you free samples. In fact, uh, in my rental property, my tenant is doing that right now. I suggested that she pick out the blinds that she wanted and they sent her some free samples. She actually sent me a picture of them today. They look awesome. We're going to go for uh, some cream colored roller blinds that both of us liked. Uh, so that process was extremely easy. And if you mismeasure or you pick out the wrong color, blinds.com will remake your blinds for free. For a limited time, you can get 20% off everything at blinds.com when you use that promo code CAPSPACE. Easy to remember because we talk about it all the time on the program. That's blinds.com promo code CAPSPACE for 20% off everything. If you want faux wood, you want cellular shades, roller shades, and more, blinds.com promo code CAPSPACE. Rules and restrictions apply. So with that epic Fizdale rant, uh, which no doubt is going to get him fined, I decided to go and look and see whether he really had some beef or not. And the things that he talked about in particular were Kawhi Leonard, who 
obviously was fantastic but went 19 for 19 from the foul line and then he said hey mike conley can't get a call what's up with that he's this veteran maybe it's just because he doesn't complain uh, that he doesn't get a call uh conley was eight of 18 from the field four of eight from three eight of six 24 points he was outstanding and leonard 37 points nine of 14 from the field and the aforementioned 19 of 19 from the line though he did have four turnovers so i went through all of Kawhi's shots and, and all of the fouls and you know i think fizdale did have a little bit of a point there were probably four or five calls that were borderline and you know he, i think he got the call on pretty much any of those he did have a couple of plays where he went to the rim and there might have been a little contact he didn't get the call but those didn't look like fouls so there was one play when he was just getting pressured up full court he kind of got by his man a little bit and then even though he was on the right side of the floor and the man was on his right side he just ran closer to the sideline which no one would ever do for any reason other than to try and draw a call and he did uh there were a couple of plays where he got vince carter in the air uh and drew the foul but you know that's carter's fault for uh, jumping and uh, putting him in that position uh there was another play where he drove across the lane and kind of just went through vince carter's arm uh, on a face-up drive that one was you know clearly call seeking behavior a little questionable but probably a foul as well uh there was a play where which wasn't a foul in his favor but he cracked Jamichael Green in the face with an elbow uh, off on a wing iso on the left side and then uh well Green was stunned went and just shot a wide open baseline jumper and then there were a couple of plays where he attacked Marc Gasol in transition and uh Gasol was called for the foul which Gasol was not very happy about uh one of them Gasol or Kawhi just kind of tripped and while Gasol was reaching in they called the foul on Gasol but the guy who called it was actually the baseline official and Kawhi's body was in between the official and the ball so he couldn't see whether you know there was any contact with Kawhi's body or the ball so that that one was a little questionable and then there was another one where uh, Kawhi went into Gasol's body Gasol came down with both of his hands uh he wanted to jump ball and, and a foul was called again you know kind of borderline calls but uh Kawhi really got the benefit of all those so I, I could see it a little bit with Fisdale and anytime an opposing player shoots 19 to 19 free throws uh that is a concern on the other hand Conley and one of Fisdale's big complaints of course was they took the Grizzlies took a bunch of shots in the paint and uh San Antonio didn't take that many in the paint and you know Kawhi shot more free throws than their whole team but he mentioned Conley specifically and I saw four plays where Conley uh even plausibly could have gotten a foul uh Conley drew two BS you know quote-unquote shooting fouls the field contact and throw it up plays uh and then there was one drive late in the game with three minutes left on Patty Mills where Mills jumped forward into him you know ostensibly doing verticality but kind of turned his body and was going forward and that one should have been a foul it wasn't called and another one where Conley came right down the lane in the first half and and it was very aggrieved, thought he should have gotten a foul call. I couldn't really see whether Pau Gasol or David Lee made contact with him or not. It looked like Lee was trying to pull his hand away. Uh, I recognized that guilty hand in the cookie jar foul by Lee. So that probably was one. So there might have been two fouls there where uh, Conley should have gotten a call and he didn't. But he also, you know, got a couple of BS fouls himself with the call-seeking behavior. And then, you know, really, the, he didn't take hardly any other shots at the rim except for just wide-open layups in transition um, where there wasn't any kind of a, a foul call that reasonably could have been called finally though uh the irony here uh, with in Fisdale focusing in, on shots in the paint is that I went and looked at some of the league numbers comparing shots in the 
paint to number of free throws per game. And as a team, Memphis is 19th in field goal attempts in the restricted area on the season, and they are 12th in free throw attempts per game, which is uh, a pretty large disparity in favor of basically foul calls that they are getting that you might say are kind of BS foul calls that aren't actually taking place in the restricted area, you know, being generated on those sorts of plays. Usually there's a pretty strong correlation. There's a few other differences. Teams like Golden State, for example, take more shots in the restricted area compared to less free throws because they're just so wide open on a lot of their shots, frankly, in the restricted area. They're not even close enough to get fouled. Uh, So I thought that that was really interesting. And Conley, he takes 20% of his shots at the rim and he has a very healthy 36% free throw rate in part because he is, in fact, one of the best in the league at the field contact and throw up some bullshit and get the call on the perimeter play. Beyond all that, you you mentioned it in passing, but Fisdale also relied on something that you see coaches do, and I'm not critical of him for doing so, where he talked about, oh, Zach Randolph, he's one of the roughest, toughest guys in the league, and he wasn't getting calls. This is not that Zach Randolph. He One of the ways that he has fallen off from an efficiency standpoint is that he's not getting to the line nearly as much as he was, and that's a big part of the reason why his offense wasn't at that same level, and part of the reason why I don't think either of us had him in consideration for a six-man of the year. Yeah, 49% true shooting from Randolph, in part because he only now takes uh, less than 30% of his shots in the restricted area at this point. And Randolph did have some duckins that that he could have made, but you know he he had a, a sequence early in the third quarter. He's actually started the third quarter and missed a couple of layups that were some pretty easy ones. And and overall, uh, Memphis just did not shoot. They didn't make their shots in the paint. They were 10 out of 21 in the restricted area and five out of 14 in the paint non-restricted area. Uh, and you know a lot of those are post-ups too which are you know more difficult shots and, and the Spurs are also great at not fouling like that's one of the things that they've been fantastic at for years and years and years and guys like Gasol Gasol for a long time has been someone who uh, you know when he was with the Lakers his ability to stay on the floor for big minutes and avoid foul trouble I mean big men don't play like 38 minutes a game the way he used to play with the Lakers and he was able to do that by avoiding foul trouble Deadman, LaMarcus Aldridge another guy who rarely gets in foul trouble uh so those guys are good at at using their length in the paint and of course memphis doesn't have the ability to spread the floor uh they were only seven out of 27 on three pointers and of course four of those were made by conley so the uh, four of eight so the rest of the team was three out of 21 on three pointers and hey guess what yeah you're pounding the ball into the paint but there's a bunch of dudes there who are really tall who are just going to jump straight up it's not like you have these amazing finishers who are like putting these guys at a disadvantage you know you have guys like gasol randolph uh, who are just kind of working into position and you know they got to make shots in the paint over length and they don't have the explosion to do that efficiency that that's what their problem is it's not that they're getting fouled and it's uh, they're not getting the calls agreed on all fronts also you, you talked a little bit about memphis's struggles from deep their bench missed all eight of their three-point attempts and even though memphis does not rely on those guys for those kind of roles except troy daniels which you know that's hopefully one of the things that he does well you can't survive you can't really survive that in the modern nba especially against a team as capable defensively as the spurs I mean, so, you know, rough and tumble Zach Randolph, right? Like he took, he was two out of four in the restricted area in this game out of his 18 shots. And so, you know, if you assume he didn't get fouled on his makes, that's only two times really that he's right at the rim that he's talking about where there'd be a candidate for him to get fouled. And he was six of the reason he shot well is he was six of nine on mid rangers. And then he was a further one of four, you know, on, on in the paint on kind of more post up type of plays. So, 
so yeah i mean i realize they're shooting in the paint uh and of course you know if you're shooting from the paint outside the restricted area those aren't really high foul areas either i mean 21 shots in the restricted area is actually really low uh, as well and and they said that he they took more than the spurs that's right because the spurs just don't take very many in in the restricted area themselves either so yeah i mean like they don't have anyone who's going to drive to the basket and score that way they don't have like physical guys who are going through people in the post like they're just yeah i don't know how you're going to expect to get the calls like sometimes and and i granted i I thought Kawhi did have a friendly whistle in this one but outside of that you know i didn't see much in this game where it was like oh memphis isn't getting these calls uh you know there are three or four of them maybe but it wasn't like that big of a disparity i also i don't think this is a big point but i do want to mention it that part of what fisdale was was using he was trying to use juxtaposition to say oh mike conley doesn't go crazy to try to get calls that argument rings incredibly hollow when the when you realize that the guy he's saying that about is Kawhi leonard Kawhi leonard is not particularly demonstrable demonstrative when he doesn't get calls you know he does have a little bit of an outsized reputation for being silent but he he isn't that guy he isn't you know one of the one of the members of various successful teams that kind of can can browbeat the refs in terms of that he might do that with his play and with his stature but he doesn't do it in the way that fizdale was complaining about and uh, perhaps you know there's a lot of a mental game to this too you know he's sticking up for his best player and frankly although they did get back within 75 71 and played much better defense in the second half they they held san antonio to 40 points in the second half after trailing 56 37 at halftime and i do think they can carry over some of that defense especially uh, with ennis doing more uh, on leonard uh, but with all that said you know i, I think he's just trying if, if he can sell his own team on the idea that hey we got screwed by the refs that's why we've been losing i mean obviously you need to make adjustments and continue to try to play better but you know i mean this is they've now lost six straight to the Spurs all by double digits in the playoffs granted you know without their main guys last year Uh, so maybe they can get game three and and make this a little bit of a series I mean that's what it's going to have to come down to now uh that game three is on Thursday night uh, on TNT so uh, there's a little bit of reason for optimism because I think they really have started now to defend the Spurs a little bit better. Like this, the second half looked like the Spurs team looked at times in that Oklahoma City series last year, where it was just Kawhi Leonard trying to go one on one, lots of ISO. Aldridge played 42 minutes. He was pretty ineffective, only had a, a 11 points on three of eight shooting. Uh, Gasol was able to hit some threes. That was important. Danny Green was four or five on threes. They were nine out of 23 on threes. The Spurs where they hit a great percentage, but you know, don't get that many up as we talked about. And so without Kawhi going one-on-one and LaMarcus not really doing that much of that, uh, the Spurs team doesn't have a ton of impetus. Parker took a lot more shots. He was three of five on threes, uh, but only uh, three for nine on twos. He fell off a little bit. It did have 15 points, but I still don't believe that he is able to be able to be an efficient engine of the offense when it counts it's been two three years now that he hasn't been able to do that um and then danny green only getting five shots that's not enough for him although he was four or five on his three pointers so i i do think that there's a little bit of evidence here that while the spurs do have some great individual talent uh, maybe the grizz have started to find a little bit of something defensively now well i understand why this series is different because of the way memphis plays their bigs it is still notable that the back Backup swingmen. So I use that term for guys that are natural twos and threes. In this game, that was 
Manu Ginobili playing 18 minutes, Kyle Anderson playing seven minutes, and that's it. No Jonathan Simmons and no really kind of going in any other direction. Now you can play two bigs against Memphis more than you can other teams. But if we're kind of going back to the idea of that Thunder series, we still don't know if Pop is going to go to those sorts of circumstances when challenged. And I don't think this is the time to, to fret about that. circumstances being a, small, a smaller lineup. Right. But I don't think this is the time to fret about it, but the more games we see kind of the marginalization of guys like Simmons and, and Kyle Anderson, I'm not saying either one of them is... Yeah. is or or even Bertan, someone who, yeah. could, who could get some more shooting on the floor at the four as well. Yeah, I mean, that's... But not that he is like he's some a different stud, type, but... Yeah, he's a different type of guy, but this the concept is very similar. You know, the idea of getting getting four spacing from a different spot. And I don't know... I, the Spurs are going to have such a massive adjustment if what we expect to see is, is the Rockets in the next round of just in terms of not only play style, but just in terms of what Spurs lineups will make the most sense. The other thing I would say about Memphis, too, uh, to finish up here, is Randolph starting in the second half. Ennis, who we thought should have been starting... I mean, I don't know what the the thinking was behind. We're going to use a uh, former ten day contract guy Wayne Selden to start and uh, guard Kawhi Leonard. That never really made a ton of sense to me. And you know he, he's committed plenty of fouls in this series, and and you know just doesn't have the length uh, to deal with Leonard. Not that Ennis is uh, some stud either, but he's at least a little more experienced. And and I thought uh, did a better job. He's able to at least kind of hang with Kawhi physically. So maybe you know if they start those two guys in the next game, start Carter at, at the two, Ennis at the three um marcus all really struggled in 39 minutes today he was four for 15 from the field uh uh, oh for two from three i do think that they should try to see if they can get some more three-pointers for gasol get him in pick and pop a a little bit more but again the the firepower with chandler parsons and tony allen both out the defensive firepower from allen uh and forcing turnovers that was another thing too they did force 14 turnovers which is good and they're not turning it over at all that that helps a little bit uh but I don't think they're reliably going to be able to turn over the Spurs team. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's looking kind of sweepy to me right now, but I'm sure they'll have a last gasp in game three. And, and I mean, the future is not looking that bright for this Grizzlies team with Parsons, a question mark, Tony, Tony Allen, uh, out for a while. Randolph is a free agent. So you really have to wonder what the next step is. They're capped out. So if this team just gets swept in the first round, you know, this is the beginning of the demise for this Grizzlies team that we've predicted for a long time and they've held on for a long time but it's, it's not looking good for them maybe a little premature before game three but uh we'll be seeing that demise if they do lose in game three all right why don't we uh move on to some news here but first a message from our sponsor SeatGeek. You can use the cap space code to get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase with NBA playoff season upon us. SeatGeek is, in my opinion, the best place to buy and sell tickets. SeatGeek has two things about it that are better than some of the ways you used to buy tickets. One is they aggregate ticket buying sites together. So you don't have to go to a bunch of different sites worrying that you might have missed out on a deal. Now uh, SeatGeek can bring a bunch of tickets together. And then the other part is their deal score technology, which ranks every ticket based on value. SeatGeek can look at seats that are priced $20 higher, but they're also a couple of rows ahead and maybe five seats to the left. And they'll tell you just what is the better bang for your buck 
based on their technology. So if you know generally where you want to sit, you already don't have to go to a bunch of sites. You save time that way. Now you can just pick out whatever they rank as the best value. And voila, you're done in 90 seconds, two minutes to buy your tickets with the faith that they've done a lot of the work for you. So the way to get started with SeatGeek, download the free SeatGeek app, go into the settings tab, click on add a promo code, and you put in that familiar code cap space. Easy to remember because we talked about it on the program. And after you make your first SeatGeek purchase, SeatGeek will send you 20 bucks. That's the free SeatGeek app promo code CAPSPACE. All right, it's news time. I think the place to start is uh, the Rob Hennigan regime is over. Uh, Matt Lloyd, former uh, scout for the Bulls, assistant GM, has been promoted to acting general manager. He will be considered for the full-time position. Scott Perry, assistant GM, also they decided to move on from him. And I mean, it really, frankly, had gotten to the point where there wasn't much of a defense for Hennigan at all uh, given the five years that he'd had and the fact that the Magic were just going backwards despite attempting to make win now moves. The biggest part to me of their legacy is is that Hennigan had a couple of nice moves I would say you know getting what they yeah, did but, for Tobias for for not for Tobias Harris sorry getting Tobias Harris in the JJ yeah, Reddick yeah, deal. The, the, that that was great and then also so was the the Howard trade actually was underrated. I mean you think about who they got in that trade uh, they got a first round from Philly they got a, a first rounder from Denver I think they got Aaron Aflalo as well who actually was good for them for a time if overrated they got well, and Aflalo and Aflalo got them Evan and Aflalo got them Evan Fournier yeah that was a, that was a very solid deal they got Mo Harkless they got Nick Vucevic in that trade too I mean everyone was like oh man they traded Dwight Howard with a year on his contract uh and, and also like they managed were able to trade Howard when he was damaged goods I mean he was never the same player again despite a few flashes in Houston in the playoffs so with all that said he, he had some moments but just so many absolute head scratchers and, and the thing that really killed him of course was the inability despite picking uh in the top five a lot uh, to get a difference maker mario hazonia uh looking like one of the worst number five picks in history two years into his uh stint as a magic aaron gordon solid pick for the number four but uh, and it's not like anyone picked right behind him has been much better uh you know julius Rand Randall, Dante Exa, Marcus Smart, you know, aren't looking like much better prospects either. Even Emmanuel Moutier, like Gordon, is probably looking like the best guy in that range, but also not a superstar, you know, someone who you can really hang your hat on as a, a pinnacle of the franchise. They drafted Oladipo in what was a weak draft number two in 2013, and then they traded him away. I mean, and of course, the Ibaka trade was truly the, the death knell for Hennigan. Two other big things that I think we have to discuss. One is the, I mean, I, I made a lot of hay out of it, so I, I feel like I have to bring it up of the way that they gave up assets for nothing. Mo Harkless for a top 55 protected pick, Channing Fry for absolutely nothing, Tobias Harris for basically nothing. And those players had value. They they had value if they had held on to them, numerous other things. And then a piece that in the postmortems on Hennigan, I think was really underappreciated. And this, this has happened before. The fact that they gave the Sixers back their own pick in that deal for Alfred Payton, I don't remember exactly what the protection on that was, but 
that was first of all it was way too much to give up for for what they did but also yeah, it was you know moving like, up two spots in the two draft spots. from and the sixers got their guy Sarich anyway and, so, and Peyton also another guy who's been really up and down it's still not clear that he is really a, a starting caliber player at point guards and committing the way that they did to him made it made it so that they couldn't really go after some of the other guys I'm not saying that they passed on somebody who would have clearly been better or anything like that well I mean everybody's better than Hazonia yeah but, well 2015 they, they probably would, would have uh, looked a lot better than you know if, if they gone for someone other than his own that's certainly true sure and so and you have all those guard. you have all those things running together and there isn't anything for him to really hang his hat on is be like like the affirmative case for hennigan is very very hard i mean he did make a couple of good moves and they got evan fournier to take a little bit less and, and a few other things but there there isn't much to show for it there and another piece of this that like we talked about the serge Ibaka trade i think that keeping him on for this season really hurt them beyond the Ibaka trade they gave long-term money to DJ Augustine, and that isn't—that's just going to be a weight over them that is not worth giving up the assets it would take to get rid of him. And those are the types of things that you don't want—the moves that you don't want to have a GM fighting for their life to make. Yeah, I mean the Harris trade that opened up fifty million in cap space, Bismack Biombo. 50 million in cap space for a bad team in a season when 27 of the 30 teams were going to have cap room. The results of that 50 million in cap space, Bismack Biombo re-signing Evan Fournier to a deal that we liked at the time, but you know, it doesn't looks average at best now. Uh, Fournier didn't have a, a great season. He was hoped to take a step forward this year. DJ Augustin, one year of Jeff Green at 15 million a year and uh, trading for the $6 million expiring contract to Jody Meeks, who was injured and, and barely played this year. Uh, that's what they got for Tobias Harris and, and all their cap space and now they're really like they're like kind of capped out I mean they don't have a ton of flexibility right now I, I'm projecting them going forward at yeah about 15 million in space which is still not very much you know that's like uh, maybe you could get a starter if you're lucky and you're a good destination there uh and, and they've got you know extensions coming up for Peyton and Gordon uh, that they have as well lots of money committed in the long term so really no flexibility going forward either they do of course have what should be uh either a, a top five or six ish pick and maybe they'll get into the top three depending on the lottery but you mentioned the abaca trade this is again you were the first to articulate this you know i've kind of mentioned this with coaches but true just as much with gms if not more so because you know they can really make more moves that'll hamstring the franchise going in the future once you start thinking about firing a guy and he's under pressure you probably should just fire him because he's gonna do some dumb shit to try and save his job and win now and prove that like he's making progress even though you know of course that shouldn't be the standard i mean that's the owners align themselves to be bamboozled and saying hey we need to see progress right now you know their definition of progress is winning more games the next year as opposed to like you know getting good potential players onto the team um but them and then of course the lakers are the two examples of really just like trying to make all these win now moves to save their job and if the person is doing a bad enough job that his job is in jeopardy to begin with that's probably not who you want making the decision to try and win now because they're not even going to do the right things to try and win now like the lakers and, and magic tried to win now and they're both uh, uh no good this year anyway and they killed their future i mean it's just the worst of all possible worlds 
Well, I feel like we have the, uh, a perfect transition from that to the third team that I think you could have included in that, who is now reaping the rewards of that, the New York Knicks. The Knicks spent a ton of money on Joakim Noah, which was a foolhardy decision, start to finish, and now they have less flexibility, and Phil Jackson, tactical genius in many ways as a coach, has made the, the also the decision to not only just hurt the trade value of Carmelo Anthony, but from the report that's out there both from I think the Daily News and from Woj that he is that he and the and the organization is alienating their best player yeah Porzingis skipped the exit meeting with Phil Jackson per multiple reports Woj then wrote, wrote a long piece saying that he was really frustrated with the direction of the organization I mean the one difference and there's actually one other team I wanted to segue to after this too uh, but the one difference is that Phil Jackson apparently had absolutely zero reason to be fearing for his job <laughs> uh, because uh, James Dolan and, and I will say this we were saying how a mutual option is like kind of bullshit and like both sides never pick it up well uh both sides did pick it up phil jackson certainly had no reason not to uh but part of the reason for that is the demise of his relationship with gene bus and the chance of greener pastures in la for him and then dolan you know still by most accounts wants phil jackson as his shield and phil of course now is just trending completely in the wrong direction he he of course i I mean it's amazing we've said this before but the idea that uh, all right you know phil you believe that the triangle works i get it i disagree with him pretty much anybody who follows modern basketball disagrees with him at this point but for you to take over three years ago and then still after year three be saying oh well you know our problem is just that we haven't implemented the triangle well enough well you're the the gm you're the president like how how is it that you haven't been able to even implement the style that you want so you now have this insulation to say well we haven't implemented the style but they've been incompetent in trying to implement the style three years they haven't even really run the triangle the way phil wants them to run it so everyone could figure out that like you know i mean everyone has but so phil could figure out hey you know we tried it and it just doesn't work the whole thing is just completely messed up and i feel bad for a lot of the you know the the other people involved in this i mean porzingis is having his formative years dealt like kind of obscured by turmoil and by in, uh, incompetence above him and mellow you know his legacy is, is tied up in all this stuff that you know the team wasn't ever really able to build around him part of that is is his own impatience in terms of helping gut the team when he got there but another part of it is that once he got there they made a series of bad moves as well and so he hasn't gotten the teammates around him and phil bad mouthing him now is yeah phil an phil insane set out decision few, yeah i mean phil is basically saying well we Mello would be better off somewhere else. Uh, and Michelle Roberts actually drafted a letter saying, hey, if players aren't allowed to complain about where they are and ask for trades, then management shouldn't be able to do it either. I suspect little will come of that letter other than just simply Michelle Roberts uh, pleasing her, one of her more powerful constituents in Carmel Anthony. But yeah, I mean, it, it's really incredible. Uh, and for Porzingis now, remember that the criteria to get a designated player max extension, now that's probably so far away way that you shouldn't even be thinking about it if you're Porzingis like how about you just you know make an all-star team first and then you know maintain that status for the next five years before you think about it. but this is how agents think you know and they want to think about this with their clients agents are always going to assume that their guy is going to be a huge superstar um 
And so you can only get the designated player max extension either from the team that drafted you or if you are traded in the first four years of your contract. And perhaps Porzingis is getting to the point where he might just say, hey, you know, this is the first test case of I don't want to be here for the next 13 years of my career if I want to get paid the most money. Maybe I need to force a trade now. That's something we talked about potentially as an unintended consequence of being on a rookie deal. Uh, and you can only uh, be traded on your rookie deal and still get that designated max extension in year eight or nine i mean if i think actually that young players on bad teams should just ask for trades more often you know uh than they do and so maybe this will be our first test case of that it very well could be and i don't i think we're way too early to get into a lot of the ramifications but i think that a good good representation will at least be considering that possibility at this point so we talked about another team where an embattled management team uh, is now under fire but is going to be retained they picked up the option on ryan mcdonough's contract in phoenix and so he's kind of now where cup jack and the option for one more year that is He's kind of where Cupjack and Hennigan were last summer now, uh, where Sarver is going to be, uh, has been impatient. They've made it close to the playoffs a couple of times, started, you know, accelerated the rebuild, and then ended up actually retarding the rebuild as a result of that when they got to 48 wins in 2014. Uh, Hen- uh, sorry, Hennigan, uh, I mean, McDonough came in in 2013. You know, they're supposed to tank. Uh, they they just didn't succeed in tanking because they're actually really good that year unexpectedly. And now this year, of course, was the absolute ultra tank from the Suns, and that of course was done with the blessing of ownership and so after a tank job like that which was very coordinated you have to imagine that he would get another year and, and of course he did um mcdonough decidedly mixed record but also worth noting that sarver has a record of doing this his belief is that you don't extend guys contracts before they get to the end of it and you know that ended up in steve kerr leaving it probably contributed to mike d'antoni leaving in 2008 uh kerr of course leaving after one of the most feel-good seasons in Sun his history in 2010 and they've, they've never been the same since after he left so now i mean i would imagine that mcdonough is going to play things out again next year uh, we'll see whether there's going to be more of a win now edict again for the suns or not but you know not really a great situation and, and of course the common thread between all these is just that these are not some of the best uh owners in the league i guess we should say in orlando new york and phoenix and you could tie in i mean with where the lakers were in terms of their overall structure and uncertainty last year i mean that was a factor in everything that happened there too and with mcdonough you it gets lost in the shuffle because of so many other things that are going on they could be a significant player in this offseason not so much with their cap space, though I guess that is a possibility, but because they have Eric Bledsoe, and Eric Bledsoe could be one of the best players that is available on the trade market, and assuming many of the top-end point guards return to their current homes, he could be one of the best point guards to change teams this year. And it's also possible that McDonough, with the win-now edict, will keep him, but they could. this is the summer where they need to figure a lot of this stuff out. And yeah, the draft lottery is going to help determine that, and McDonough has a decidedly mixed resume in terms of the draft a lot of that will also depend on how people feel about Dragon Bender and we also have to see you know Marquise Chris I thought they did a good job moving up to get him we'll see if it works out just because I thought he was he was the guy before the drop-off and then they did a great job getting it Devin Booker where they did I mean that that's a massive success but we'll have to see moving forward that I thought you was they did a good job with him but you know we're getting to the point with the guys that are on their you know that they're on their rookie contracts that are going to be sliding out of that Al 
Alex Len is going to be a free agent this year, TJ Warren is going to be another year, that the rubber is starting to meet the road with them. And that's not a great time to have a GM that is kind of maybe not on his last legs, but that is in the strained part of the evaluation period. You would probably want somebody who is more in line with whatever your long-term vision is to be making those decisions. Yeah, and I also think it's interesting that uh, Earl Watson, his coaching style reminds me very much of Mark Jackson's, where you know he really tries to cater to his players. He's combative. You remember the fouling to prevent Russell Westbrook from getting the triple-double, then going for fouling to get the stats, and then his comments afterwards about, hey, if you don't like it, like do something about it, you know, other than beat us comfortably. <laughs> uh, although you know i think he he's like mark jackson without actually you know having coached a a decent defense for a couple of years and having some modicum of success and obviously without the talent that that warriors team has but there are you hear a few things about him really uh, trying to manipulate you see how hard he really plays for the favor of his players really i think more than a lot of coaches probably should you know i think there should be a little bit more of a disconnect there and you know with mcdonough on an ending contract watson i think his contract actually goes a year beyond mcdonough's you know i i could see him kind of going the like jason kidd route the jackson route although he eventually lost his power struggle you know i i could see a little bit of that dynamic developing in phoenix and you know i've I've heard some whispers nothing confirmed that that, that's kind of the dynamic there a little bit i feel like the the next the next place to go in terms of this is christian wood had a had a team option for this coming season that was declined it charlotte doesn't really have much cap flexibility moving forward so they presumably just decided they would rather have a roster spot than christian wood which is defensible yeah, Wood had some time to play, uh, but they really decided that he couldn't be effective at all. Uh, he's got a lot of physical talent. I'm sure he's going to play in summer league. He'll probably look good again in summer league. But you know, there's two franchises now that really have been exposed to him, and you know, I think just he may not be there yet from kind of a work ethic standpoint, a professional standpoint yet. Uh, the next thing too is a report from Woj that GMs are complaining about the buyout process, uh, essentially saying that because there's like a little bit of tampering and because teams know that guys are going to get get bought out now they can't trade these guys in the last years of their contracts so it's like hurting the trade market um and in particular it's hurting small markets i mean i i was pretty incredulous at this report i thought it was just total complaining and belly aching and just like my response to that is just kind of grow up like this is these are some ridiculous complaints to me agreed i mean the the teams that have been hurt by it i mean you could argue that one of the biggest the biggest teams that was that was weakened by this was the knicks you know brandon jennings they they just cut brandon jennings the mavericks with darren williams and andrew bogut they're not exactly a small market team i'm sure if you if you said that to mark cuban he would argue it pretty vociferously so it's teams that are not in the right place in their cycle and obvious and often it's teams that make the wrong that make incorrect identifications of talent you know i'm not saying that necessarily with with dallas but at certain moments some of those buyout guys it's just you know they ended up on your roster and it's not fair to have the expectation of getting that and also part of the problem is the disparity between the, the value of assets that are available to teams you 
You know, maybe we've talked about the idea of a, a 1.5 round pick, but it's also that the, the top half of the second round is valuable and the bottom half of the second round is almost worthless. So yeah, maybe they could get a worthless pick for those guys, but are you going to tell good teams that? that are trading for this guy, right? Good teams have bad second round picks and, and these guys aren't worth first. Like that's the thing. Like these guys aren't worth anything. Like they're not good and they're usually have huge salary. So now you have to send back salary. None of these teams want to take on long-term salary and anybody who's making much money on a good team already uh is probably going to be contributing so they're not going to want to give him up they're not going to well, want to give up assets i mean look at bogut to the Cavs. like the, what, what were they supposed to trade for him and that's exactly where i was going to go with this is the league has made it very difficult in the modern era and there are justifications for this for teams that are expensive to add talent you know, the hard cap in the Clippers case, the just the idea of, of adding guys. And so Cleveland with Bogut is, is a good example of it. There are numerous other ones where it's like, yeah, okay. So if that's where he wanted to go, that would the only way it was going to happen was through a buyout. So even if you change the system around, yeah, maybe they're going to have it go that way. But also it'd be interesting to see if agents ever wanted to put it in there because also there's just the, the pragmatism of this that it's hard to create a system that does what these GMs purportedly want to do. Here's the thing. If you're guy's good you can get some assets for him Serge Ibaka is on an expiring contract he's making 12 million a year oh hey guess what they got some assets for him because he actually can play and he's worth his salary Joe Johnson was making 20 million a year nobody's going to trade for Joe Johnson making 20 million a year in the last year of his contract especially when he'd been really bad for most of that year with the Nets uh, as he was just kind of beaten down on, on a horrendous team like you know Miami and the Cavs were the one that was interested in Joe Johnson last year those guys they didn't have matching salary of 20 million to trade and the Cavs don't want to trade back 15 million because now that's another like 25 million in luxury tax that they have to pay if they take on more salary you know these guys aren't worth anything that's why you're not getting any assets for them you know like there's supposed to be some bidding war for Andrew Bogut who played like 15 games this year are you kidding me I like that this still makes you angry after we've talked about it offline like three different times well and it's the it's the small markets thing too that really kills me because there have been so many what I think generally are bad policies that were enacted by praying to the altar of small markets. It's like in politics, however, it's like, oh yeah, we got to help small business. We got to help small business. Like that's the most important thing. Like there's it's some holy grail to have a small business instead of a larger business. Like it's the same thing with small markets and all of these things that are supposedly supposed to help small markets. Either they fix a problem that has nothing to do with market size like this one. I mean, it's just whether you're a good team or a bad team, that's what determines it. Uh, whether guys you're going to buy someone out or whether you're going to receive a buyout candidate um you know the luxury tax was supposed to help small markets but now the only teams that can afford it are big markets so it actually uh, or rich owners so it actually has hurt small markets the the stricter luxury tax in the 2011 cba it's just it's very hypocritical the other the other huge one that we have to mention here is the extension system the extension system was jacked up in the 2011 cba because they were all mad about lebron and all these other things and you know who lost out the the biggest team in that CBA, the Oklahoma City Thunder, one of the smallest markets in the entire league. And it, it was another, uh, you could call it an unintended consequence, but I don't think it was an unintended consequence at all. Well, I, I wouldn't say, I mean, the lack of sign and trades was due to LeBron. I think the extensions well, no, the sign and was trade more... was The sign and trade was mellow. Oh no, that was the extend and trade was mellow. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the extensions was more the Richard Hamilton, Stephen Jackson extensions, like protect owners from themselves, protect uh, uh, players from like, 
agitating for extensions when they're eligible. So that that I think was more the issue there. Right. Um, I agree that was more you. protect stupid owners than than uh, small markets. All right, I, I'm getting worked up here uh, for 1:37 a.m. I should probably calm down a little bit. Um, well, we can we can get notes. to some Sixers yeah. news. <laughs> Yeah, uh, go for it. So there are two different things with the Sixers. Uh, we'll we'll do we'll do the dessert first. Ben Simmons was cleared for five on five work, so he can he's not going to play in summer league, but he's he had a clean scan, I think, is what I heard on his foot. And then on the negative side, according to the Sixers PR staff, Robert Covington will undergo surgery in the coming days. Yeah, that's on that uh, torn meniscus that was uh, diagnosed a, a couple weeks before the season ended. Another interesting stuff. This is something that you, of course, are very dialed in on with Warrior salary issues. Tim Kawakami wrote a piece today discussing the Warriors' future from a cap perspective, and he seemed quite confident that they were going to work it out and keep this team together. Uh, he reported he's heard that the Andre Guadala deal is basically done, except for the years, which is uh, you know a little interesting. But even for that deal to be done, you know, in the first year with a certain yearly salary, that would be commensurate with what. Iguodala wants that would imply that there's an assumption that KD will not take his max salary that'll be uh, about a three million dollar haircut this year but would enable him to then uh, sign a four-year max deal next year uh, and of course keep uh, Andre Iguodala and perhaps Sean Livingston although I think he's more likely to move on so uh, that's encouraging for Warriors fans we'll see whether that actually all ends up working out you know the best laid plans can go awry depending on what happens but certainly I think that this marriage, despite some small bumps in the road with like, you know, the Curry performance in on Christmas, KD's like two for 10 performance in Sacramento in January, uh, with Durant back looking good in in that game one the Warriors looking like by far the best team in basketball you know it's been about as good of a marriage as any of them had a right to hope for they completely fulfilled expectations from a performance standpoint and uh you know no reason to think that this group is going to get broken up especially after all the crap Katie had to go through to get here I actually recorded the Locked on Warriors episode that will be for the same day as this dunked on was partially on that Iguodala possibility. And I went through some of the options in terms of Durant with and without. And something I floated in there, I we, I don't want us to use this as a point of, of emphasis for this podcast. I also talked about Ian Clark, which, which I think is a fascinating situation. But with Iguodala, the possibility that he, if need be, would do something more in the Manu Ginobili realm. And so what Manu did was he took that pay cut for one year to facilitate facilitate them bringing in LaMarcus Aldridge and then got a pay raise this year, you know, the subsequent year. You have to be very careful about those sorts of things. You don't want a Joe Smith situation, but that possibility is just kind of there considering the pre-existing relationships between all the parties. I don't expect that outcome, but I wanted to broach the possibility. Yeah, because if Iguodala, if they re-sign him to a one-year deal, then they would still have full board rights on him with him having been on the team five years so they could pay him whatever they wanted next year um so yeah all right i think that'll do it for today uh, thanks so much for listening don't forget about our sponsors blinds.com use that cap space code to get uh, 20 off and 20 dollars off your first tiki purchase by a rebate using that cap space code as well don't forget about the tour nba show i was solo today danny will be joining me tomorrow we got three excellent games on tap uh, starting at four eastern four pacific yes and also, what a, a, a great Eastern. wrinkle for tomorrow. 
tomorrow is it's the three games where the home team lost game one. So there are a lot of a lot of panic meters, a lot of a lot of different stories going into Tuesday's games. Yeah, we'll see how we'll do. We'll probably just start off early on and then switch back and forth with the early games, see which uh, which game looks like the best, and then uh, you know we've got the late game. You want to just uh, give us the schedule real quick before we sign off. Milwaukee, Toronto is at seven Eastern. Chicago at Boston is at eight Eastern, and Utah Clippers is at ten thirty Eastern. Yeah, that that'll be awesome. And also, actually, I tried something today, which I think we'll do again tomorrow. Which was we heard a lot of people who are streaming. Basically, whenever you try and stream a game, it's ninety seconds or so behind, and so normally we'd just been doing it as fast as we could on our tv and that was a little bit easier for people who were trying to sync up watching on tv but it made it impossible for the people who are international listeners or watchers or you know people on streaming services and we figured if you're watching on tv you can always just delay it for 90 seconds that's a bit of an inconvenience but compare that to just not being able to watch it all because we're actually ahead of the action uh, for the streamers so we tried to uh cater to the streamers this time got some positive commentary in the comments so i think we'll do that in the future see kind of what that does to our numbers and if you want to weigh in on that a little bit you know i don't really i definitely would suspect danny would you agree with me that probably a greater percentage of our listeners stream than just you know on average or or watchers of the tour nba show i would say so but also i think the people who enjoy listening to us would also be willing to have that delay because all you really have to do is record the game and then just just queue it up and since we are pretty frequent about our timestamps it's very easy to sync it up that way and you can get you can basically get the desired experience without the volatility that we have that is a part of the process just because however you get to watch the game there the timing on it's going to be different and also the timing can be different in terms of a periscope i've heard that mobile and desktop have slightly different timing and that's not a problem if everybody is just kind of controlling their feet a little bit yeah all right but again we love the feedback on the twitter nba show it's an experiment we're trying to make it better and and we appreciate you guys watching and uh also telling us how to make it better so thanks so much for listening thanks so much for watching talk to y'all tomorrow till then at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every basket every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.